Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This is the first week of the summer season that the National Weather Service issued excessive heat watches and warnings for Southern Arizona. This week, we talk about the heat. Triple-digit temperatures in June are no surprise in the Sonoran Desert, and while many view it as part of life here, it can also be deadly. Last year, the Arizona Department of Health Services reported 302 heat-caused deaths. Those are defined as deaths where the primary cause of death is listed as exposure to excessive natural heat. In Pima County, nonprofits, the county, and the city of Tucson all operate cooling centers when the mercury climbs. Those city refuges open when the temperature is 110 or higher. But this week, Tucson Mayor Regina Romero convinced the city council to change that threshold to 105. She spoke with us just before the proposal was brought up. And the reason that we're suggesting that is because in 2021, there were only eight days that rose above 110 degrees. But there were 19 days that rose above um, 105. Romero told us she wants to ensure the cooling centers are more than just a place to escape the heat. We do need to make sure that we take steps to increase usability. In other words, allowing people's pets to come with them, uh, making sure that we have on-site nonprofit organizations or uh, other services that we can provide residents while they're there, and making sure that there's also activities. Most people are familiar with the concept of the urban heat island. Areas like Tucson and Phoenix that are warmer and do not cool so quickly as the surrounding areas. Dr. Ladd Keith at the University of Arizona's College of Architecture studies heat islands. Any urban area that has more built environments, materials, and waste heat than its natural surrounding or rural countryside is going to have a higher heat severity than those natural areas. So not just a Phoenix problem, it's every city across the world deals with the heat island. Um, the city of Tucson is actually often uh, ranked as the third fastest warming city in the United States. And so our average annual temperatures have already increased about four and a half degrees since 1970. So heat is something that we should certainly be paying attention to in the city of Tucson as well. We're the third fastest heating city, you said. Is that due to, in some effect to our location or is it really the heat island affect all this pavement we put down and, and houses we put up and things like that? Yeah, so it's a combination of both our location in the desert, which is already hot, of course, but also the fact that we've grown so rapidly. So a combination of both the growth, our location, and then, of course, climate change is increasing average annual temperatures. And uh, also we're projecting in the future that, um, at least in the desert southwest, Temperatures will increase by as much as 8.6 degrees Fahrenheit um, by 2100 under the highest emission scenarios, um, which for Tucson specifically would mean something like 45 more days a year with temperatures above 90. So I don't think that's something that, that any of us alive today are really looking forward to, right? You teach in the, the College of Architecture. So what is it about design or what do we need to do with design, especially to maybe start mitigating, at least in Tucson, some of the heat island effect? 
we understand what causes urban heat islands very well. So it's the this material use in the built environment. It's the waste heat from air conditioners and cars. So anything that we can do to kind of reverse those things um, can help reduce the urban heat island effect. One misnomer is that denser areas are uh, the cause of the urban heat island effect. And actually, if you look at any of the urban heat island maps for the city of Tucson, downtown and around the U of A campus, some of our denser neighbors neighbors and uh, denser areas of the city are actually much cooler than some of the suburban areas. I think it's a misnomer that density causes the urban heat island effect. It, what matters is how you design those places. And so using cooler surfaces, more reflective surfaces on tops of houses, um, using more vegetation, um, reducing the amount of roadway infrastructure and parking lots as much as possible can all help us uh, reduce the urban heat island effect. People are going to be absolutely stunned when they hear that downtown and around UA or cooler than a lot of other areas. And, and you said it deals with reflective surfaces and things. Is it just a construction issue or is it because nobody really lives, especially in the summertime, in those areas as much? So it's both the urban form and the design of those areas. And if you think of the U of A, very uh, kind of dense part of the city has lots of tall buildings, but also very heavily vegetated and, um, you know, very kind of nice and green space too. And downtown is kind of similar in that way. And the buildings themselves actually create nice shaded kind of canyons and walkways um, that are much cooler than other parts of the city. In the city of Tucson, really our hottest areas, unfortunately, on the south side. And so one study found, um, done by colleagues at, the, at UCLA, found that on an average summer day between um, 2013 and 19, the average morning temperatures of the hottest south side neighborhoods were hotter than citywide averages by up to eight degrees Fahrenheit. And if you look at those compared to the cooler temperatures in the foothills, um, that difference was 12 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really, there are certain parts of the city, unfortunately, due to economic circumstances, um, these are largely uh, minority neighborhoods, lower income neighborhoods are much hotter than other places. So it's the lack of public investment in those areas. So the lack of green spaces, the lack of trees, um, you know, lower income folks uh, have less ability to pay for their own landscaping of their yard. So that contributes to it too, of course. Um, but then also some of the south side areas are more heavily industrialized and have more of the kind of the economic activity that powers our whole city, a lot of those really important functions are all located on the south side of Tucson, too. And so, unfortunately, that all kind of adds up for that being a hotter place. What are some things that we can do to help reduce this as either homeowners, business owners, or as a community as a whole? Waste heat is kind of an invisible, um, you know, less thought of contributor to the urban heat island effect. But any of the city's efforts to increase transit um, and kind of uh, uh, public you know, public transportation, active transportation modes like walking, making streets safer to walk and bicycle on. Anything that helps reduce a little bit of that vehicle use can help reduce the urban heat island effect, too, because you have less cars that are actively contributing to the heat of the city, right? Um, I think on the home level, I absolutely do not recommend that anyone gets rid of their air conditioning unit. And in fact, we have to do a better job of making sure that everyone in the city, regardless of income level has uh, functioning air conditioning and can afford to use it. I think the trick there is really um, making sure that everyone has uh, weatherized homes as much as possible. So there's uh, public assistance programs for that for low-income community members. 
How about planting trees? Do we need to get out there in an our yards and on the south side, maybe even more park space, things like that? So we did a survey of communities across the United States, um, and we found that urban forestry and kind of urban greening efforts are the number one strategy that cities are really excited about to help um, mitigate the urban heat island effect. I think in a place like Tucson, we need to weigh that very carefully against kind of the water resources that that takes, because obviously we're in a mega drought and, um, you know, the the levels of the Colorado uh, River, uh, different dams and stuff are at their lowest levels ever. So as long as we plant drought tolerant trees and we plant them in places that actually need them, so we're very strategic about planting them, we make sure that when we plant them in the right place, that we take care of them and that they kind of thrive in their location. Trees can absolutely help reduce the urban heat island effect and provide shading outdoors too. That was Dr. Lad Keith from the University of Arizona. He studies urban heat islands. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. A few weeks ago, news sites across the country blared the headline that blackouts are coming this summer due to excessive heat. This week, southern Arizona is dealing with its first excessive temperatures of the season. But Joseph Barrios with Tucson Electric Power says the power company is ready. It's something that we worry about year-round. Uh, you know, we, you know we, we, are, we do live in the desert. We do know what it's like to endure hot summers and high temperatures, and, and we have for a long time. You know, uh, collectively, our, our, our company, I mean, we, um, we're accustomed to those challenging uh, types of, of conditions, but, you know, really the preparation begins months and months in, in advance. You know, we um, have various maintenance programs where we upgrade or we maintain our poles and wires. You know, uh, during the winter, for example, or the fall and the spring when the weather is mild and customers' energy demands are as high, that's when we're, we're performing maintenance on our uh, generating resources. And so the, the idea there is, uh, again, we know summer's coming and we know what to expect. And so that's when we perform a lot of the, the maintenance work and the upgrades that uh, you know we're going to be relying on when when summer arrives. Now, of course, if uh, you know we get a monsoon storm and the winds are really strong and it blows down our stuff, that's going to happen. Unfortunately, there's no such thing as a an electric system that can withstand anything. But you know, certainly we know customers are counting on us, and we know that um, you know they they need their air conditioning uh, over the summer because it is so hot. Is there ever a capacity issue for TEP where you all can only generate so much energy and then maybe you have to look outside for more energy, you know, on those those couple of really, really hot days we always get? We do have our own generating resources, uh, but during the summer when customers' uh, energy needs are highest, we do have to purchase additional power to satisfy those those energy needs and and you know it makes sense i mean again it's hot everyone's counting on their air conditioning um and and you know we we you know we we know to expect that um what we do is we take a look at past energy usage uh of our customers we look at uh, weather forecasts and and other data and essentially we make a prediction about how much energy we think our customers are going to need during those, you know, those the very hottest days of the summer. And then we make arrangements to provide even 
more than that. And so there's usually a, a margin, a buffer, so that even if we, you know, even if it is hotter than we expected, we have already made arrangements to uh, to be able to provide um, power to satisfy those those energy needs. A lot of people are getting into solar, putting solar up on their roof um, or commercial spaces over parking lots and things like that. Does that help you all, especially in those peak hours with all of that additional generating power? Generally speaking, I mean, you know, uh, so solar, uh, whether it's the customers or whether it's ours, uh, it, you know, it, it certainly does satisfy a, a certain amount of uh, customer energy needs. But on the whole, solar is most productive earlier in the day. So late morning, early afternoon, um, usage is highest later. So, you know, say four or five o'clock. Um, those are, you know, generally in that time frame between three and seven, um, that's when energy needs are, are highest. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the big question is, well, is there a way to take all that solar that's generated earlier in the day and make it available and use it later on in the day? Well, then you need energy storage. So you're looking at batteries or, or some other type of technology. Uh, we're certainly looking to expand our storage capacity. That's a big part of our resource planning moving forward. But, you know, that infrastructure, it's just, it's really not in place right now. When it comes to electric power and air conditioning, especially here in the desert, that that can be a health issue because bills do go up because we're using more power in the summer. Does TEP have programs in place to help folks out, maybe low income folks afford their bills through the summer so that they're safe? We do have, um, you know, for qualifying customers, uh, we have a, a monthly bill discount that's available to them. They can get an $18 uh, discount on their on their bill. Um, and, you know, certainly we work directly with customers who face financial challenges, which is something we've seen, you know, quite a bit over the last two years since the pandemic started. You know, we have uh, there are payment extensions that are available, uh, payment plans that we can work with. Um, we've uh, been working at great length with customers to educate them about funding resources, either either from the federal government or through local nonprofits that um, offer emergency bill payment assistance. And so um, there, there really are, you know, quite a number of resources that are available to them. The, the key, the big thing that we ask them to do is, you know, if they are having trouble paying their bill or if they think they're going to, uh, you know, maybe their financial circumstances have changed. You know, we ask them to to contact us. We would much rather hear from them, even if they're in a difficult position and can't pay their bill or, you know, they're having trouble paying their bill. We would much rather simply talk to them uh, because we may know of and we may be able to point them to a resource that can help them pay uh, their utility bills. That was Joseph Barrios with TEP. Electricity is what powers that invention that helps us cope with the heat, the air conditioner. The cooled air that is ubiquitous, though, didn't come into homes and offices easily. Salvatore Basil, the author of Cool, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything, explained to us that societal attitudes contributed to the slow adoption of air conditioning. There was a definite, as Vance Packard wrote, mindset of 
God made hot weather, so you should put up with it. And I had experienced that in my own family. When I was six years old, uh, one aunt shocked everyone by buying two air conditioners. And this was a family scandal because air conditioners were only for rich people. But what I noticed immediately was that every family gathering at that point suddenly switched to her living room. And when I encountered one of these machines for the first time, walking up to it when no one was looking, I put out my hand, and it was mid-August, and I felt cool air. I was instantly hooked. But there was definitely a love-hate relationship. And when you go back years and years with other people, heat uh, generating heat in cold weather was something very understandable. Strike the flint, watch the fire grow. Uh, anyone uh, that had been going on for millennia. But the idea of a machinery or a technology that could actually produce cold air, this was extremely foreign, hard to understand. Uh, there was a story of one man who, when, one of the first, when he had seen one of the first 19th century ice machines, and indeed these were run by steam engines, he reported this when he came back home to his town and he was thrown out of his church by the elders because they assumed that he could only be lying and what he was describing was against nature. For a long time, I have covered governments and politics, and you had this refrain, I think it was seven or eight, if you will, sub-chapters called Washington, and the struggles Washington, of— Yeah, exactly. And the struggles to get the U.S. Capitol— and the politics of getting the White House cooled. That was quite an ordeal that was decades and decades long. When I started the book, I had no idea this had happened. I sort of stumbled on the initial plans to, uh, as they put it, ventilate the Houses of Congress in the 1850s. And I was stunned by this. And the more I read, the more amazed I became. And by the time that air conditioning showed up, it was indeed a very long and exhausting battle. And at one point when some of the legislation had passed, reporters in the gallery were singing, literally, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It was astonishing that there was a politicization of air conditioning as indeed a, a rich man's toy, a fat cat technology, Again, something only for rich people. And for that matter, when the first electric fans had shown up, and indeed they were quite expensive in the 1880s and 90s when they were brand new, there were some politicians who bought them and other politicians who used that fact as a political club to beat their opponents during a campaign. Which was part of the reason it took so long to get air conditioning in the White House also, because nobody wanted to be accused of using taxpayer dollars for that fat cat luxury, as you called it. Absolutely. And then you had someone like FDR in the 1930s who preferred to go without air conditioning, and his time was one of the uh, first eras when the White House got anything. But because he was so adamant about it, they put separate units in separate rooms. And as far as his own unit in his private area, he pretty much never turned it on. Uh, it was, uh, they, as they call it, it was just used as a repository of water. 
talking about FDR and moving into the post-World War II era and Levittown and places like that, air conditioning was was still a luxury, but it was starting to make it into regular people's homes. What was the thing that really kicked it into mass use? It's funny because if you look at the commercial introduction of air conditioning to the general public, it is one of those timelines where everything happened wrong. Uh, the first the first units for home use were huge and cumbersome, and they cost literally as much as a car. And they were introduced in mid-1929, about six months before the stock market crash. So the people who bought them were only the people who were absolutely in the top 1% of income. And then Frigidaire, the manufacturer, lost its shirt on that whole project. Everyone stayed away from this for a number of years. Then home air conditioning made a very tentative start during the 1930s, but this was depression time. There were units that you would roll up to a window and install, and some of them required extra plumbing. They were cumbersome. They were big. They were, again, expensive. It didn't work out terribly well, and once more, it was a rich man's technology. Not till after the war did the technology shrink enough that the window unit became a real thing. And it was in the 1950s that manufacturers finally were beginning to be able to drop prices just enough that an air conditioner was a possibility. At that time, as well, the 50s were a great keep-up-with-the-Joneses era. And in areas like housing developments and suburbs, an air conditioner was a great status symbol. And it was a status symbol that could be easily explained as, oh, this is for the family's comfort. And when you had a situation where the man was going to an air-conditioned office building and the wife was, of course, staying at home because that was the 1950s model, it was almost a foregone conclusion that one would have to make the family comfortable by getting this. That did a lot. Since we're talking on radio, we cannot ignore what you wrote about with radio and TV helping to move the technology forward and really bring some of the vision, if you will, of air conditioning into American homes or really homes around the world where CBS and NBC radio early on had to come up with quiet um, air conditioning units. And then I think my favorite story was the jazz band that dressed in the heavy parkas. Um, uh, the Clicquot Club Eskimos, yes. Exactly. And then would play on TV under the big TV lights. And, and that problem had to get solved quickly. Yeah, absolutely. The advent of conditioned air, quiet conditioned air, made radio doable. However, with the advent of TV, which was experimenting uh, an experimental uh, technology even as early as the 30s, TV was so much hotter and so much more broiling, as they called it, that there had to be a whole new standard of comfort for people who were involved in broadcasts. This is something which actually goes back to Arturo Toscanini, who had made headlines after he had 
done some TV broadcasting and was so uncomfortable that he was announcing to every newspaper in the world that he was quitting. And NBC immediately said, whatever you want, however you want it. And their solution was to completely refrigerate the studio that he was using. We have talked a lot about the history of air conditioning. What do you see as the future? This is a technology that seems like it's always changing in some way. Well, I'm going to hope that it's always changing because the world itself is always changing. If you look at, say, the U.N. statistics on the world's 10 largest cities, in 1950, they were cities like New York, London, Tokyo, Paris, Moscow. If you're looking at 2030, the predictions, Delhi, Shanghai, Mumbai, Beijing, Dhaka, Karachi, in other words, they are all moving into the area, the largest cities in the world are getting into the area that they would call tropical. And a number of those cities are famous now as being new, uh, very enthusiastic consumers of AC. Now, this is, of course, natural and AC provides a real benefit because people are not dropping dead. But if we look at the history of technologies dating back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it seems that one technology modifies itself to fit new requirements. We've seen that in the last 20 years or so, air conditioning is beginning to take advantage of this trend. We've seen products being tested, which are literally a departure from from the current compressor-driven air conditioning unit that we all know and love. And these are units that don't use compressors whatsoever. They use completely different technologies and water as their uh, cooling agent in a way that we've never seen. They're in the testing phase, but I'm going to assume that just as the acoustic phonograph, the Victrola, gave way to the modern stereo and then to the CD and then to digital files, I would like to assume that air conditioning is going to follow the same trend, and we're going to find a technology which is energy efficient, kind to the environment, and does the job. It just seems logical. There have been people who have talked about getting rid of air conditioning entirely, but considering how many steel and glass buildings without windows we all have in every city everywhere, that's simply not practical because you'd suffocate. That was Salvatore Basil, the author of Cool, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.